Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now is the best time of the year to support the podcast. For we have reached the dog days of summer. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 423 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, Launch, and the Vomit Bag Scandal. Launch preparations for Skylab 4 were going well until November 6th, just five days before liftoff. At that time, a pre-launch management meeting at the Cape was interrupted by news that an inspection team had discovered hairline cracks in the aft attachments of the eight stabilizing fins at the base of the first stage of the Saturn 1B during routine structural integrity checks on the launch vehicle at the pad. A more thorough examination disclosed cracks on all eight attachments, two cracks on each of the seven fins, and one crack on the eighth fin, the longest of which was one and a half inches. The cracks were likely caused by stress corrosion due to the age of the stage which had been out of service for more than seven years. Some also thought that the cracks could be blamed on the thruster problems of this second Skylab crew. The Skylab 4 booster had been transported to the launch pad during the summer to serve as a booster for the potential Skylab 3 rescue mission. It was thought that this additional period of resting on the fins had caused the cracks. In any case, the management team decided to postpone the launch to November 15th to replace the fins, as there was a risk that the fins could be ripped off as the Saturn passed through Max-Q. It took 35 hours to rig the support platforms to remove the first 485-pound fin, but there was still confidence that the countdown could begin in the early hours of November 13th. Further cracks were discovered in seven of the eight S-1B, S-4B interstage reaction beams 
on the morning of November 12th. Stress analysis indicated that reinforcing the beams with heavy aluminum plates would be sufficient and would remain within safety limits. However, the launch had to be delayed by an additional 24 hours to November 16th. Meanwhile, the removal of the fins continued during 12-hour shifts with new fins being flown in from NASA's Michoud, Louisiana facility. By November 13th, workers had replaced all eight fins and had fitted reinforcing blocks around the mounting blocks on each fitting to ensure an adequate load path if new cracks appeared in the bolt fittings after final inspection. Liftoff of the fourth Skylab vehicle was delayed for a week when hairline cracks were discovered in the rocket fins. With the fins replaced, final checkout was performed by the KSC Manned Launch Operations Team. This Skylab launch would be the last manned flight from Kennedy Space Center until the Apollo-Soyuz mission in July 1975. During that mission, American and Russian astronauts will link their spacecraft together in Earth orbit. Stress analysis test on the new and old fins before and after installation provided new data confirming that the new fins were within safety limits for launch. Walter Caprian, director of launch operations, added that he was told that age makes a difference, even in metal. The Skylab astronauts Carr, Pogue, and Gibson made final preparations today for their blast-off tomorrow morning from the Kennedy Space Center. From that launch pad tomorrow morning, three rookie astronauts, leaving their 13 children behind, take off to spend Christmas orbiting the Earth. Their mission? Man's longest stay in the hostile environment of space. Skylab 3, an open-ended flight that could last as long as three months. Today, the crew unwound by flying jets through the sunny Florida skies. For Gerald Carr and William Pogue and Edward Gibson, it's been a long wait. Seven years in the astronaut program for Carr and Pogue, eight years for scientist Gibson. Two final delays caused by cracks in the launch rocket, and it's waited uh, for eight years, too. But astronauts and space officials are confident now of an on-time 9 a.m. start for a mission crowded with experiments measuring the crew's physical responses and giving man the best view he's ever had of a visitor from outer space. A close-up look at the comet Kohotek, now burning a fiery trail through our planetary system. Tomorrow's space launch at Cape Canaveral will be the last American manned space flight until 1975. The Skylab 3 astronauts are scheduled to lift off at one minute after 9 o'clock Eastern Time tomorrow morning for a record 85-day stay in space. On the day before launch, Jerry Carr recalled, quote, I went to bed early that night, knowing full well I would not sleep worth a hoot. Several days earlier, we had started trying to shift our circadian clocks to allow us to go to bed at something like 6 in the evening and then wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning. So at about 4 o'clock in the morning, Elmer Taylor, who was our flight crew systems coordinator, came into my room and said, 
The bird's waiting. It's time to go. I had actually fallen asleep. Finally. But then I woke up with a start and got up. The first thing scheduled was our physical. They took microbiological swabs from many parts of our bodies to find what kind of flora and fauna were living on us. They cataloged their findings as part of a long-term experiment to determine how much microbiological material we would leave on the spacecraft and what we would pick up, if anything, left by the crew ahead of us. It turned out that we did pick up some of the bugs left behind by the second Skylab crew. For rookie astronauts Jerry Carr, Ed Gibson, and Bill Pogue, the day began long before dawn at 4 a.m. when they sat down to breakfast with fellow astronauts, their last meal on Earth before lifting off on their scheduled 85-day-long flight. Carr continued, quote, After our physicals, we went into the crew dining room and had breakfast with Deke Slayton, Al Shepard, Kenny Kleinick, and other managers. It's interesting that our meals at the crew quarters were always steaks, eggs, and all those good things that are just wonderful for cholesterol. In the subsequent years, my wife and I have totally modified our diet so that now we don't touch any of those foods, mainly because of their high cholesterol and fat content. It's amazing that dietitians in those days thought that lots of steaks and eggs was the best thing in the world for us. After the meal, we began suiting up. I put a watch on my ankle although I was not supposed to be taking anything up. But I had this Movado, which was a self-winding watch with one of those little counterweights in it. I was very curious to find out if this self-winding watch would still work in a weightless environment or whether the weightlessness would inhibit the motion of that little counterweight and keep it from winding the watch. Our official watches, Omegas, that we wore on our wrist over the pressure suit were regular hand-wound plain old mechanical watches. So I put the Movado on my ankle and finished suiting up. The third Skylab crew boarded their spacecraft on the morning of November 16, 1973. The countdown proceeded smoothly to T-Zero at 9.01 a.m. We're approaching the one-minute mark in the count now, T-minus one minute, and the astronaut crew, Carr, Gibson, and Pogue just about completed their pre-flight preparations. Bill Pogue just brought up the spacecraft batteries. They're online now, and they're giving extra electrical power to the spacecraft at liftoff, and they also act as a backup to the fuel cells. Last action taken by the crew, just being done now by spacecraft commander Gerald Carr at T-minus 45 seconds, and uh, he made the final guidance alignment that done from the spacecraft. T-minus 28 seconds and continuing to count. Launch vehicle now on internal power. Status board shows all stages on internal power on the flight batteries. T-minus 18 seconds. T-minus 16 Count continuing to go smoothly, T-minus 13, we'll look for an ignition at T-minus 2.1 seconds, 9, 8, 
seven, six, five, four, three, two. We have, we have a liftoff. Liftoff. The engine is building up to 1.6 million pounds of thrust, and Skylab is moving slowly off the pad. It's cleared the tower.
They're about uh, almost 100 miles downrange now. 65 nautical miles in altitude. They're making about uh, 5,000 miles an hour, almost. Uh, a little more than that. Roger, Houston, looks good here. Our coverage of this final Skylab flight will continue in a moment. Carr continued, quote, Launch went off perfectly. It was a beautiful, clear day. I remember when the escape tower was finally kicked off, and it took the shroud with it. The light that came in the cabin was just blinding for a minute. It was incredible. I tell a lot of people that riding on a booster like that is kind of like riding on a train with square wheels. You've got lots of noise, lots of vibration. Then sure enough, when you hit that first booster shutdown, staging, and then the next booster kicking off, it's just exactly what everybody had called it, a train wreck. I thought that was very apt. We got into orbit without any problems. Everything went just fine. Eight minutes and 28 seconds later, we were on orbit and things were beginning to quiet down. Looking out the window for the first time, I was totally disoriented. I didn't recognize a thing. Suddenly, somewhere in the first 30 minutes or so, I saw Italy. And I said to myself, Italy really is shaped like a boot. I've never forgotten that particular experience. End quote. Ed Gibson recalled a slightly different launch experience, saying, quote, Liftoff is an exciting time, and any crew person who is not excited doesn't really understand what's about to happen. On that crisp, cool morning of November 16th, we rode in the standard NASA van out to the launch gantry, a 37-story building, and our Saturn 1B booster resting on a structure that brought the command module hatch to the same level as if it were atop a Saturn V booster, a structure that resembled the world's largest milking stool. As we rode, the big blue eyes of Al Shepard bored into each of us looking for any signs of weakness, any indication that one of these rookies was not ready to go. I looked back with a defiant smile. Not you, Big Al, or anyone else is getting my seat. Then we took an elevator to the top floor of the gantry, walked along a narrow but exposed hallway, and waited to get strapped into the command module. Since I sat in the center seat under the hatch, I was the last one in, which gave me a chance to just stand outside and gaze at the vehicle. For most of the pre-flight time, we were busy and didn't have time to reflect. But then, I had about 20 minutes where I could just stand back and drink it all in. It was dark, but the booster was brightly illuminated by searchlights on the ground. Because it had just been fueled, it was creaking, popping, and groaning from the weight and the frigid temperatures of the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, which caused continuous shrinking and readjustments of the metal. All of the electrical systems were up. 
Gases were venting and lights were blinking unlike what we had ever seen before. No longer just passive metal, the vehicle had taken on a life of its own. It was alive. I found it difficult to get the wide grin off my face as I was strapped in. It was an exhilarating few moments of anticipation that to this day I highly value and feel fortunate that I had an experience similarly noted by the previous two science pilots on their missions. As we waited for launch, we learned who was really in charge, who would have the last word. You see, a few days before launch, they discovered cracks in the fins on our booster. Because we were eager to go and not happy with the five-day delay required to replace the cracked fins, we started to refer to the booster as Old Humpty Dumpty. Well, somehow, that got out in the press and, of course, didn't sit too well with those good troops who were working around the clock to get the booster ready in time. But much to their credit, they said nothing, at least not until 20 minutes before launch when we got a message. Good luck and Godspeed from all the king's horses and all the king's men. Finally, we heard launch control start counting backwards from 10. Then a tremendous sucking sound as propellants got ripped into combustion chambers. A noise Bill later said sounded like they had just simultaneously flushed every toilet in the Astrodome. Far below and lasting less than a second, we felt eight engines ignite in a ripple fire and we crept off the path. The front of my mind was focused on gauges and abort procedures, even as a little whisper spurted up from the back of my mind. The basement just exploded. The ride on the first stage was noisy and rough, like a Hummer doing 80 miles per hour over moguls. At about one minute into the flight, we went through the speed of sound and also reached the maximum of the aerodynamic forces and turbulence that built up as we rammed through the wall of air resistance ahead of us. The vibration became severe. I felt like a fly glued to a paint shaker. Then it smoothed out a little until staging at two minutes, which jolted us like a head-on crash quickly followed by a sharp impact from the rear." End quote. Bill Pogue recalled the incredible noise and vibration of the launch, saying, quote, The noise caused by airflow over the booster had been building all during the first minute of launch. It was so loud that it was difficult to hear the intercom between our suits. Once we were supersonic, all the outside noise ceased because the air noise couldn't penetrate the shock wave attached to the command module. Then we could hear the creaking and groaning of the structure as it responded to abrupt swiveling and gimbling of the engines. We also heard liquid propellants rushing through feed lines. Because of the intense vibrations, I had difficulty reading my hard copy checklist which I was supposed to use to compare the predicted performance against our actual performance as indicated on the computer display. End quote. Ed Gibson said, quote, 
The second stage reminded me of a long, smooth elevator ride that accelerated ever faster as the mass of the propellants burned away. Eventually, we weighed three times our normal weight, which was not bad because our hearts were at the same elevation as our heads, so graying out was not even a possibility. But it was hard to lift a hand, and I noticed my cheeks and ears sliding towards the back of my head. Then, at a little over eight minutes, the engines cut off sharply. Immediately, everything floated. Our spacecraft, which they tried so hard to keep clean at the Cape, filled up with small dirt and debris that floated up from its hiding places on the floor. In short order, the air conditioning system cleaned it all up. Outside, I saw the curved horizon and the coast of Florida receding. This was the best simulation yet. I looked back in to study the gauges and threw a few switches as we configured the spacecraft for rendezvous with Skylab. When I glanced out again, Italy was going by, and I understood what it's like to travel at five miles a second. After several orbital maneuvers, a distant speck expanded into Skylab. It was missing one wing and a micrometeoroid thermal shield, and it was covered by two jerry-rigged sunshades. I felt a warm glow. We had arrived at our new home. This was going to be great. End quote. The astronauts rendezvoused with the Sky Laboratory as it completed the 1480th revolution of the Earth. Skylab would orbit the Earth over 1,200 more times while the third crew lived and worked aboard the space station. A fly-around inspection of Skylab revealed that the sunshades installed by the first two crews were in good condition, as were the solar panels, which generate electrical power for the space station. The crew was originally supposed to move into Skylab immediately after docking, but mission planners decided to delay their entry to give them some time to adjust to weightlessness. This was because the second crew had experienced space sickness upon their arrival. The third crew spent the night in their command module, stowing equipment before moving into Skylab the next day. About that time, Bill Pogue began complaining about not feeling well. The crew discussed it and decided the best thing to do was to go ahead and eat. One of Bill's items was stewed tomatoes. He ate them down, waited for a while, then said, It's coming back up. So he got out his bag and vomited. Jerry Carr recalled, quote, The day before we left Johnson Space Center, the doctor said, Now we are real concerned about the space sickness thing. We want you to take medications. In the medical sensitivity test they had done on us, they found which of the anti-nausea medications were best for each of us and which had the least side effects. The doctor said, Jerry, we want you to take something. In fact, we want all three of you to take something. I said, 
wait a minute. I'm driving this multi-million dollar vehicle and I'm not even allowed to drive an automobile or fly an airplane when I take Scopnex, which was one of the medications. Why do you want me to do it now? They said, we do not want you to get sick. I said, I will take the sickness rather than the disorientation and decided not to take the medication. Well, Bill wanted to be a good patient and said, Okay, I'm not driving, and I'll be able to manage fine, so I will take the Scopdex. What surprised us was that Bill was the one who got sick. Whenever Bill and I went up in a T-38 to do acrobatics, I was usually the one that turned green, not Bill, and he had taken the medication, end quote. Gibson confirmed this, saying, quote, We called Bill Old Iron Ears. You could never make him sick on the ground. Put him in a rotating chair and he would never get sick. He used to fly for the Thunderbirds. So you figure that if there is anybody going to get sick, it would be me, the real novice, or maybe even Jerry, but not Bill which showed us that we did not really understand the problem, end quote. Bill Pogue said, quote, There is not a direct correlation between who suffers from motion sickness on the ground and who has problems in space. I have observed that people who are susceptible to motion sickness, particularly susceptible on Earth, tend to not be in space and vice versa. Clearly, someone like me who went through the full limit of head motions at the highest RPM in the rotating chair at the Pensacola Naval Facility and could have continued indefinitely is by definition highly resistant to motion sickness on the ground. They never could make me sick. But who got sick first on Skylab? I did. Is sort of an inverse relationship. End quote. The crew discussed what to do about Pogue's sickness, knowing that their actions would have a ripple effect on the future of space exploration. At the same time, work on the space shuttle was beginning on Earth, and there were those in Congress who opposed the program. The success of the space shuttle was contingent upon astronauts being able to execute a one-shot glider landing. The shuttle's opponents would argue that sick astronauts would be unable to make such a landing, and it seemed that the future of the program rested on the third crew proving that this would not be an issue. Therefore, with the future of spaceflight in danger, the crew decided not to talk about Pogue's motion sickness. Jerry Carr recalled, quote, With all the pressure they were putting on us not to get sick, Ed and I said, Well, look, maybe we just won't say anything. In fact, we thought it might even be best to toss the vomit bag down the trash airlock and not to report it. 
That way, we would not get people all fussed down on the ground, and we could get the mission off to a smooth start. We knew we had a lot to do, so we said, okay, that's what we'll do. We hope Bill will feel better tomorrow, and we can press on. Well, unfortunately, Bill, being the sick one, was also the guy in charge of the communication system. And he had left the switch on to the equipment that was recording all the intercom conversation. So, while we slept that night, people on the ground played it back and heard all of our previous conversations. The next morning, Al Shepard came up on the Capcom loop and said something like, You guys have made a mistake here, and I hope you have not destroyed the vomit bag. I said, No, we have not done anything like that, and I agree with you. It was a dumb decision. We will put it in our medical report, weigh it, and do all the necessary things and go from here. So they discovered that we were trying to conceal information, which we felt pretty bad about. But that was our motive. We didn't want to fuss things up anymore on the ground. It was dumb, yet we did it. We wish we had not, but we did. End quote. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 423 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab 4, Launch, and the Vomit Bag Scandal. Our next episode should be released on or about Friday, October 6th. I'm still struggling with enough time to get things done. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 241 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers, including Spotify. You have to put in the word archive, though. I don't know why, but you've got to put the entire title for Spotify to find it. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist. And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. In afterthoughts, as always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. And, well, we finally got one launched with minimal problems after it left the pad. Although those cracks in the fins would have given me concern as to what they 
did not find if I was riding in that Saturn 1B. The Skylab was using up the old Saturn 1Bs just like they said they would, and it was much cheaper. But that Saturn B was a little past expiration date. Hey, but it still worked. Then they had to set it on the fins for so long, which added to the problem. But hey, those Saturns were great launch vehicles. What did you think about the vomit scandal? You know, I guess it's kind of like Alexa. The Amazon Alexa thing. You think you're having a private conversation. And suddenly, Alexa starts answering some question you didn't even ask. Sometimes Siri does the same thing. So what happened is the crew thinks they're having a private conversation, but they're not. It's being recorded. They don't want to let Mission Control know about the vomit bag. And they decide, why don't we stash it in the trash airlock disposal and nobody will know. But Big Brother was listening to the tapes. I don't think you want to experience an angry Al Shepard. If they had been on the ground when that happened, his response would have been much harsher. But since it was over the air, it was not. But the astronauts were trying to help the shuttle program by hiding their their vomit problem. Now, obviously, that was not the right decision. NASA needed to know so they could come up with a solution and understand what did not work right. Now, of course, I can understand why the astronauts would do it. But it was the wrong decision. And they got some grief over it. And they also genuinely felt bad about the attempted deception. In personal news, and by the way, feel free to skip this part if you're not interested. In personal news, the 15-acre soybean field was sprayed with a drying agent. And it got dry fast. I was wondering why they were coming out there spraying it, but it really started getting dry then. Then, just today, as I'm writing this, they're harvesting the soybeans. There is a huge dust cloud hovering over the field. Thankfully, it's not that windy today, but we are still getting dust on the house as well. Uh, for the personal garden, it's done. That's all we're going to get. And we're going to probably go ahead and bush hog that thing soon. If you're keeping up with the health of my mother-in-law, I have good news. She has passed both tests and is meeting with the surgeon to schedule her valve replacement surgery on, what day is it? Some, sometime later this week. And we're very thankful for that. I will keep you updated. Now, donations. Over the past fortnight, we received five 
new donations and pledges, I would like to thank James J., who donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Thomas W. donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Christopher L. from Australia sent in another donation and moves to the Gemini level. Craig H. from Australia sent in another donation and moves to the Mercury level. Matthew N. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Patreon is currently at 233. And looks like we may be stuck there. Don't look like we're going to get all our patrons that we lost back, unfortunately. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and personal checks for 2023 have reached 329 with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So, if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 10 and a half years without commercial interruption, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, Donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of an SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Simon Pierce. Simon Pierce, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 424 posted on or about October 6th. You guys are the best podcast audience out there. Thank you for sticking with me. So long for now.